Hello, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Franks. And I'm Serena Chen. Look, we're both self-proclaimed nerds with an interest in tech and the future, so it's really only expected that we'll neither of us own Star Trek pyjamas yet. An episode about science fiction is going to be on point. Well, my long downward spiral started with Animorphs and the New Zealand author Ken Katran, and Serena's has involved Battlestar Galactica. This episode is both about the fictions we love to bore our friends about, and the broader place of science fiction in society. Why, when your imagination is endless, are there a lot of straight white people in space? Why are there so many of the big hits, especially in the cinema, kind of boring stories? Why isn't The Expanse Season 2 on Australian Netflix yet? All this and more. But first, Serena, can you tell us about your science fiction journey? My journey? Well, it all began. (laughs) I don't know, I guess I started developing an interest in science fiction around the same time I developed an interest in real science. And a lot of it started with short stories, so uh, The Time Traveller by H.G. Wells, and a bunch of Asimov short stories. Uh, The one that stuck with me the most being The Last Question. Have you read that one? Yes. Yes, Mm, it's very good. Very good. Um, That and a lot of... I don't want to... It's not like... I don't want to say fan fiction, because it's not fan fiction, but it's short stories from random writers online, on the internet. One of which... I don't know his name. (laughs) But his blog is like... QNTM, uh, it's, it's some like nondescript thing, and it his blog is actually called Things of Interest, now that I think about it, <laughs> which was just like a... Uh-oh. Yeah, uh-oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was like back in the early 2000s, like a collection of blog posts, essentially, and he, uh, he did a bunch of sci-fi stories, one of which is called, um, I don't know, Timothy, Being God is a Big Responsibility. Mm, yeah, I've read that one. Yeah, i I probably would have linked you to it, because I I tell everyone about the story. It's one of my favorite sci-fi short stories of all time, and it's by some, like, random dude on the internet that I found (laughs) in, like, 2003 or something. Well, I mean, that's how The Martian started as well for All That Sins. It was originally a series of blog posts. Oh, wow. I had no idea. That's fantastic. That's so good. But, yeah, the story is about the idea that we're living in a simulation. Um, some of you might be aware that there's some like theoretical math papers out there that say the chances of us being in a simulation is quite high. And it's fun to speculate and think about because there's no way that we can actually measure it. There's no way we could actually prove it. Uh, but the story takes the idea of us being able to simulate a world and just runs with it and sees where it goes. And it's brilliantly written. It's one of my favorites. So check that out. Um, and I guess the the most uh, obsessed I've gotten in the sci-fi area is at the end of high school when actually my calculus teacher got me onto Battlestar Galactica. He was like, you need to watch this. You would love it. So And my calculus teacher is pretty cool. So I was like, oh yeah, sure. And I ended up mainlining the entire thing through exam season. <laughs> so good for your exams like I would literally be watching BSG pause an episode <laughs> go to my chemistry exam come back unpause the episode <laughs> so not recommended but it was a fun time and I really enjoyed that show because um I mean in television and media and in stories fictional stories where you have you know the whole imaginative your like anything your brain can imagine at your hands. There are a lot of sacred cows, um, taboo topics that people don't tend to touch. And when they do, they do it with a very light hand because they don't want to lose their funding. Um, And what Battlestar really impressed me with was, and I mean, sometimes I came to conclusions that I didn't agree with, what they impressed me was was that they took on those sacred cows and they com- like questioned every single assumption that we have about our society, our morality, what is right, what is wrong, who we are as human beings, how we identify ourselves. And yeah, I freaking love it. I still love it. 
How about you, Sophia? Like, so what's your sci- sci-fi journey? Well, yeah, like I mentioned, my entry point was probably Animorphs. Um, I have read every Animorphs book, and boy, mm-hmm. oh boy, does it get fucked up at the end there. <laughs> um, oh yes, uh, that kind of traumatized me as a ten-year-old. Um, but like, I always sort of read a lot of science fiction. Um, I didn't really watch very much for quite some time. I think a friend introduced me to Firefly in mm. oh I would have been year twelve, so I was probably sixteen. Um possibly possibly earlier than that. But yeah, so I was introduced to Firefly during high school. Um and that was like, this is amazing. I love this. <laughs> oh yes. Cowboys, Cowboys in space. In space? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've moved on. I'm now very into uh, gritty detectives in space, mm-hmm. um, which The Expanse does so beautifully for me. And I've just mainlined the um, Elijah Bailey novels that Isaac Asimov wrote, which are three books where Elijah Bailey is a gritty detective in space. And it's like, yes. Wonderful. Um, I don't think I've ever been particularly, like, obsessed. I mean, I watched, like, almost all all of Orphan Black's first season in one night. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's more indicative of, like, a good TV show and my, like, inability to sleep <laughs> rather than necessarily, like, a sort of science fiction-specific obsession. Um, I think probably where I get, like, more engaged in worlds would be, like, when I discovered the Mass Effect games, which was actually only a couple of years ago, um, and sort of played through all of them. And I know you haven't played them, Serena, and I'm just... <laughs> they're so good. <laughs> Um, a friend got me to play them because I was sort of talking to him and I was like, yeah, I keep playing like space games and games with lesbians in them. And he was like, well, <laughs> have, have I, I got, got a, a game, game for you? For you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think we'll probably circle around back to discussing Mass Effect because like, while certainly I played it because I could be a lesbian, like a lot of that imagery and a lot of the way it does it is quite male gazy. Mm, um, that's interesting. And like, I'm not, like, I take what I can get, you know, as a mm. queer woman. Like, kind of like, well, oh, don't really get much, do I? So I guess this will do. But it's still, like, it is really important to be critical. Um, and they really improve sort of in the later games as well. Mm. Um, but, yeah, my science fiction journey has been sort of like an always in the background thing that's happened. And it's definitely increased once I've got, like, more in tune with, like, futurism, which is, um like, we were both at Future Assembly uh, late last year, uh, which is essentially like a futurist conference, as you might expect from the name. <laughs> um, and that's where people who are developing things in the future, people who are, like, making our world a science fiction world sort of come and present their work and what they're doing. And you can, like, try out a whole bunch of VR stuff. There was one that made me feel like I was Harry Potter. Um, that was great. <laughs> uh like, it's definitely sort of, like, amped up a little bit since then. Um, I'm currently reading Ursula Le Guin's set of short stories, Birthday of the World, which I, I think I should actually grab that out of my bag because there are a few things that she wrote that I found really interesting. So just give me a sec. She's fantastic. So Ursula Le Guin is, like, an incredibly prolific and also very, very good writer. And um, something she wrote in the foreword to Birthday of the World, the copy I have anyway, is um, she mentions that one of her short stories is talking about um, a slave-based society and economy of some worlds in the process of revolutionary change. One critic scoffed at me for treating slavery as an issue worth writing about. I wonder what planet she lives on. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, Earth Ursula pulls no punches. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, she's just, I think she's a particularly interesting writer when she approaches sexuality and gender identity. Mm. Um, and I think she does it very well in sort of the fact like that is really, really open to interpretation. And that's really often the kind of science fiction I'm drawn to is either the very technically heavy science fiction, because like as a geneticist, like, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but also the science fiction that recognizes that what we have in our current society isn't set in stone, like at all. Mm. And that there is, a lot of ways that societies can be built and beings can live and that like humanity isn't really like a base code from what you can kind of edit and take what you want. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with science fiction. Yeah. Have you read the um, Left Hand of Darkness also by her? I have not. I've read the um, Wizard of Earthsea saga. Ah. 
Um, so as I mentioned, Ursula, Ursula Le Guin is prolific. Yeah, and she's yeah, freaking <laughs> awesome. Um, the Left Hand of Darkness is about a planet called Winter, where they don't really have gender. Is like the one line summary. And it's about, like, the protagonist visits this planet and tries to, like, figure this out. It's really, really weird to him. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. You should you should go for it. You should read that. <laughs> <laughs> this Basically, this entire episode is going to be, like, book recommendations, game recommendations, movie recommendations, TV recommendations. <laughs> and then criticizing everything we just recommended. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I thought it was... Uh, it was really good how you mentioned how much you love Mass Effect, but you still have to be critical of it, and how like it is quite male gazy. Because I, so I've rewatched Battlestar Galactica quite a few times, um, mm. and it's so interesting to go back to the shows that you loved five years ago, ten years ago, and see how it's aged. And by seeing how it's aged, you kind of see like how you've grown as a person and how your values have grown as well. So. At the time when I was, oh, I don't know, like 15, 16, and I was watching Battlestar, it was the most feminist thing I knew. They had... So they took the um, original Battlestar series and they rebooted it, and one of the main characters, they gender-swapped. And the fans are fucking livid. But fuck that, because Starbuck is, like, still my idol. (laughs) And um and they have they had a bunch of female pilots, like and Starbuck is known as the best pilot. Like she's not just a pilot, she's literally the best pilot and the best shooter. And she's it is an ensemble show, but she is definitely man of the one uh, one of the main protagonists. And like everyone in the show calls the pilots sir, no matter what their gender, they just give that respect to them. And that was so good to me but when I rewatch it again like maybe last year the year before I see that even though they were striving for that gender equality it was very male gazy <laughs> like mm. the main robot the silent robot she's like tall beautiful blonde and she has a lot of sex scenes a lot of naked scenes which is fine if uh, if that happened as much to the guys, but it doesn't in that it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Like if, if any of our listeners out there have had a show that they loved when they were young, I'd kind of recommend rewatching because then you kind of see like how you've grown as a person by seeing how you think that show has aged. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's a discussion that's been had quite a bit about Star Trek as well, particularly, mm. um, with both the reboot of the movies and, like, whatever the fuck The Wrath of Khan was, like, and the reboot of a series. And particularly, um, with the really sudden and tragic death of Anton Yelchin, who was playing Powell Chekhov in the movies. Oh. And sort of in the very original series, like, Chekhov was there to show that there is a future in which the US and Russia could work together again mm. and that there would be no difference the same between them. In the same way that you have Sulu and Ahura on the main like yeah. flight deck. Like it's showing that everyone's working together. But Chekhov was particularly important because that was at a period of time where like the tensions between the US and Russia were really high. Mm. And a lot of discussions that have talked about like um Chekhov's like really like tragic and early death. He was twenty seven, which is just like Yeah horrifying like I just say like to accept that to treat it in the story as like you know Chekhov has either died or moved on from the Enterprise but to replace him with like a Saudi woman wearing a hijab or someone else that is like currently seen as the US's enemy to show that there is a future where they will work together Mm. again because that would be like most truly in the spirit of continuing on I think going back and I've only watched Next Generation but oh boy Do I love Next Generation? (laughs) Um, Like, it is really interesting to sort of watch something that was made that long ago with the gaze of today on it. And so, like, my favourite season from Next Generation is the first season, which a lot of people, even the person who told me to watch TNG, was just like, oh, it's very campy. Like, it's not very good. But, like, one of the things that really stuck out to me in the first season was, "Mm, this is going to sound so little, but, like, the men wear dresses sometimes. 
there's a Star Trek like tunic and in the first season and not in any of the other seasons the men wear the tunic sometimes and that was just like yes yes yeah. yes please yes this is my future thank you everyone I mean I also love how campy it is like do not get me wrong it is like beautifully silly in the first season and <laughs> it definitely like approaches a lot of very serious issues but like just that little gender neutral thing of like this is a future where clothing is just clothing. Hmm. So big to me. Like that's, oh, that's fantastic. I think the other thing as well, like on the flip side of that, Star Trek ages like a fine wine, Firefly ages, um, is like us sort of almost as a group, like recognizing that Joss Whedon's feminism is, uh, he's trying and yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> you should definitely watch Voyager. I, I've only ever seen Voyager, like I've, I've seen a couple of episodes here and there, but I, I'm going through Voyager episode by episode and it is a bit campy, like all Star Trek, but I unironically love that show. It is fantastic and it makes me very happy. I've been watching a bit of, um, Deep Space Nine. Oh yeah. Which is, the stakes are so low yeah, in almost I know. every single episode and I love it so much. <laughs> it's so it's like... If House of Cards was about, like, a municipal council <laughs> rather than the United States government, like, it just makes me so happy. <laughs> I know. Sometimes, um, Love that. Sometimes we watch Deep Space Nine to take a break from Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> and then we go back to Voyager. Mm. Alright, so, I want to talk a little bit about, um, diversity as, like, a selling tool of science fiction. Because that's definitely, like, how it's existed in the past and I think like to an extent like mm. that is how it existed in Star Trek as well like if you have Uhura and Sulu and Kirk and like even Chekhov like on the main bridge being like essentially like major characters you're mm. getting people who are African American who are Asian American and white people wanting to watch the show because they can see themselves in it um yeah in a similar way like in Animorphs and boy oh boy are there going to be some spoilers for Animorphs in this episode um <laughs> The series came out a while ago, homies. Um, like, in the sort of six main characters, like, you have an African-American girl, and you have a Latina boy, and you have um, a boy whose parents are getting divorced throughout the course of the series, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You have a boy who, like, never knew his dad, and also becomes a bird permanently, and then it turns out his dad might be an alien, I think is an alien. It gets a little bit complicated there, like less relatable, <laughs> but like there are those sort of entry points for people from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, and I think like JK Rowling's done this in um, interviews and certainly like this is fantasy rather than science fiction, obviously um, where she said like, I wanted to write a book about a magical school. And I realized that girls would read books with boys as the main character and boys would never read a book with a girl as the main character. And I think she's dealt with that by having Harry Potter as the main character, where realistically all of the books are about Hermione, let's be real. Um, <laughs> whereas Kay Applegate did it, both in Animorphs and her other series, which is called something like Everworld, by having like this shifting um, focus. So there's one book that's told entirely from Cassie's point of view. There's one book that's told entirely from Rachel's point of view, and then from Jake's and Tobias's and, you know, the alien boy, Axe. Like, that's the way that people find their entry points into the series, regardless of their gender, regardless of their race, regardless of anything else. Um, like, yeah, and I think that was partly so her books got sold because boy, oh boy, even though like a chunk of them were ghostwritten, there were 54 of the main series. Like, and those I happen to know cause I made my parents buy some for me. Those are like 12 to $14 at bookstores. Hmm. Like she's making a mint off that shit. Um, yeah. But also Animals is just the most ridiculous thing that's ever existed. <laughs> well, this is this is the frustration, right? It's like... And this is the frustration with all products and services that only seem to market towards straight white men. It's like, you're missing out. Such a massive market. And it blows my mind that when you pitch a movie idea to some studio execs uh, and if you cast a person of colour in the in the main role then it's like a quote like a, it's a it's a diversity film yeah whereas if you 
if there's a white guy in the main role, it's like, oh, it's a film for everyone. And I just don't understand. They're losing so much money. They're making so many bad sequels of every movie ever made. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're desperate, and yet... <laughs> I mean, I think to an extent we're moving away from that in the sort of fantasy science fiction area, because, like, Jason Momoa's Aquaman is not at all being touted as a diversity film. No. But Jason Momoa remains Hawaiian. And I don't know, really actually, No, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that, because, like, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is Samoan, and... No film that he's ever been a main in has been sort of touted as a diversity film. And I don't know if that's, like, an acceptance of him as being Samoan or if that's just, like, some mad erasure going on. Someone did make the point once that when people of colour get to a certain point of fame, they're no longer their identity. Like, so Will Smith isn't black. Will Smith is Will Smith. Ah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think that's come into play, where where it's like, The Rock has reached this level of fame where he's just The Rock now. Yeah, like, rather than being someone. Rather than, yeah, rather than being someone. But I mean, to an extent, he still has value to people who are also Samoan. Oh, absolutely. Fully. It's just yeah, that he's 100%. not recognised by white people as that. And I think that still is like yeah. a harm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, um, have you seen that, oh, I think it was like an SNL sketch. Beyonce is black. Oh, yes. The day Beyonce turned black. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's the same kind of reasoning there, right? Like, when you think Beyonce, you don't think, oh, a black woman. You think Beyonce. And, yeah. And I think in part that's because to reach that level of fame, to reach that, you kind of, as a person of colour, have to have to whitewash yourself in some ways you have to behave as the the status quo as the rest of the stars do and i do think in like early on in people like will smith beyonce like the rocks their careers like they didn't emphasize their backgrounds as much mm. i don't think like when i think of beyonce's music in i don't know like 2005 it's just like Oh, she's another pop star. Yeah. Um, the music was not political, not... Uh, it didn't clearly stem from her background and from her upbringing. It was just like, oh, it was some you know, generic pop music. Whereas now... <laughs> oh, I love, I love her so much. You have... Oh my god, I love it so much. Now she is like... Oh, by the way... <laughs> I'm black. I'm from Texas. This is my upbringing. These are my family. Like yeah. these are my people. This is what we go through, and it's just. I love it. I love it so, and it's so shocking to white people. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like the SNL sketch was like a little bit silly, but also like entirely right with how it is. And this is the fact of the best SNL sketches. And then I think was a very telling point where a woman is talking to one of the white women in it, and she's like, but you know, I'm black, right? And the woman goes, you're not black. You're my bud. Yeah. It's just like, oh, that that's how white people think about race. That's right. Yeah. Because, like, I think a lot of white people get stuck in the very awkward position of having to, like, okay, maybe awkward isn't the right word, the weird position of having <laughs> to, like, not be racist, yeah. but also to recognize race. And I think they don't understand how to do that, so they're just like, Maybe I'll just, like, ignore race. Yeah. Are you... Where are you from, Serena? You seem like <laughs> Eastern Europe. Like, that's the kind of thing that happens. And, like, even, um... Even, like, I've had the experience when talking about friends and people, like, pretend not to know where they're from. And it's like... Yeah. No, but they're, they're Chinese. They yeah. have a Chinese name. You've met yeah. them. Like, yeah. you it know is, this, right? It is really tricky, though, because I have trouble with this as well. Um, and I'm not white, and I, I have trouble with this a lot. Which is, like, because everyone has different comfort levels with these things, right? Like, mm. if um, it's very reasonable for a person of colour to, especially if they're in an environment in a different country where not a lot of people look like them, mm. uh it's very reasonable for them to just try their best to blend in. 
I know that's what I was like when I was younger. When mm-hmm. I first came to New Zealand, I was just like, I am going to be as white as I can, essentially. I didn't think those words, but that's essentially what was happening. I didn't want to stand out. And even now, like when people ask where I'm from, I first say New Zealand and then I say China. Uh, and yeah. it's it's because you feel you feel the pressure you you feel the fear of what might happen if you do tell them about your heritage even though it's like I'm clearly Chinese you can see it <laughs> yeah yeah um so I can see that but on the flip side I can also see how that's that's erasing someone's identity and that's not cool either so you're not you're not wrong when you say it's awkward. You're not wrong when you say it's weird, because it's awkward and weird for me, too. And I don't really know where I sit on that scale, either. Like, if if someone came up to me and, like, asked where I was from, I still don't know what answer to give, and I still don't quite know what answer I should give, or I'm comfortable giving. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I mostly bring it up when I'm, like... It's gonna sound real bad until I explain it. When I'm, like, making a joke. So, um, mm. for example, I was sort of telling a story about when I asked a friend um, if they wanted to go to the movies, and this friend was of Asian descent, mm-hmm. and I was just like, oh, lol, do you want to go see Ghost in the Shell? And she was like, no, Sophia, I don't want to go and see <laughs> Ghost in the Shell. And I told this story, and mm. my white friends I was telling the story to were like, oh, why didn't she want to go see it? And I was just like, oh, my God. Da, da, da. <laughs> You, you've met her. You know this. You know the answer to this question. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> Whenever I get into that kind of situation, I go quiet, and all I imagine is subtitles under my face saying, Serena is typing. <laughs> yeah, very like, much let me, so. let me compose a response to this. <laughs> let me um, not yell about it. <laughs> the other thing is, like, and this is very, like, Bizarre for me to say as a white person, I certainly don't mean to, like, impose on anyone else's identity at all, but, like, I get mm. asked a lot where I'm from. Mm. And I get asked a lot if I'm not white. Mm. And um, I told this in the last episode, like, when that Uber driver asked if I was mixed, like, that happens, like, a weird amount for someone mm. who, like, was born in New Zealand as a fifth-generation white New Zealander, like, I'm pretty much as mayo as they come. <laughs> and I still get people being like, oh, but where are you really from, though? It's like, fucking Denmark in, like, the 1800s? What do you want from me? Um, and I think, I like, th- there is a really uncomfortable amount of, like, race policing. I think it's way worse in Australia, but I did used mm-hmm. to get this in New Zealand as well, um, where people are just like, oh, but who are you actually? Yeah. Like, just by, like, by being from New Zealand, we're lying to them. It's just like, fucking, <laughs> we're, we're, co- we're a country of immigrants. Calm down. It's okay. Let me live my life. That's interesting, because I've... This is, like, total anecdotal evidence from me, but from my anecdotal evidence, I found that it might be um, curly hair. I found that white people with much tighter curls get asked that a lot, because these are the people, these are the friends who have told me that they keep getting Mm. asked whether they're mixed, whether they're, like, not white, whether they're a different ethnicity, just because... I also talk a bit funny, like, I recognise that. Oh, I think, I don't, no. Yeah, but you talk a bit funny too, Serena. Yeah, yeah, but I... (laughs) No, I think, like, actually that's one of the things I do really like, circling back, good Mm. segue, Sophia, about science fiction, is, like, there is much less of that kind of policing of race as it exists now, Mm. Um, and that, like, I think the broad majority of science fiction writers have realised that would be way too on the nose. Um, <laughs> but then you look at something like um, the Miles Trilogy, where throughout the course of the books, um, so the Miles Trilogy are by Kim Stanley Robinson, and it's about like humans settling on Mars, colonising Mars, terraforming Mars. Um, mm-hmm. And like while the original like flight over and like the first book for a lot of it, like there are Americans and there are Russians and there are other people that are also there um, from other countries. And like to them, like their differences in nationality are quite important. And then it sort of like explores the way that becomes to an extent unimportant or important in very different and weird ways. So like, for example, in, um, the later books, there's a lot of discussion of the people who are moving to Mars and people who make their homes there. There are a lot of Saudi Bedouins. There are a lot of Pacifica people who go to Mars and like make their homes in different places. But that 
isn't as important as how long you've been there. So people who are like second or third generation, like Mars natives, Martians, mm. um, like they essentially belong more than people who've only just arrived. And like, well, that's also like quite fraught in its own way. I think it's quite an interesting way of looking at like race and how we like look down on people. My friend Jenny always refers to like the very recent immigrant and fresh off the boat and she just has like no time for them. She's like, I don't care. I'm like, I don't know if you can say that. <laughs> um, I mean, like, this is why we like um, police race in Australia and New Zealand is essentially we're saying like, oh, if you're not white, you obviously haven't been here for very long. Yeah. And like, that's really shitty, but to see that through a different lens is quite interesting. That is interesting. And I wonder how differently they would play out because a big part of, how racism plays out is that it's a difference that you can visually see, mm. which just makes it very hard to get away from. Oh, I was going to say, like, in the in the Mars trilogy, it's sort of written as something you can visually see, like, okay. both in the sense that, like, because Mars has less gravity, like, second and third right. generation people are taller and better at running around and shit like that. Um, yeah. But it is, it is sort of... It's interesting. It is. And I kind of find that in real life when... Um, when people ask me where I'm from and stuff and other Asian friends, like, where they're from and, and whether, like, they were born here or not, sometimes I, I have been doing, like, a little A-B test throughout my life, which is when a stranger asks me um, whether I was born here or not, sometimes I'd say yes, sometimes I'd say no. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't born here, to make that clear. Okay. I wasn't going to ask because it's not any of my fucking business, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I moved here when I was very young, so... From my perspective, uh, there isn't much of a difference because my formative years were all in New Zealand. So it isn't a big difference. Um, but it is a big difference to the people who ask whether I say whether I was born here or not. Because I literally could have been born in China and flown right to New Zealand at the age of a few months. And that would have made a difference to them. That's which so is so weird. fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's even more fascinating when I'm around second, third, fourth generation Chinese, like, whose families came over in the gold rush, like, in the freaking 1800s or some shit. So, like, their families have literally been here since the country started. Yeah. Um, just how the tone of the conversation changes, just how, like, the level of respect changes. It is interesting, but it, I don't know. I don't know if it gives me a little bit more hope or less. I want to <laughs> say a little more, because... Then I can, I can reason to myself uh, that maybe this racism thing can be detached from like a how long you've been here thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe. you say that, but then it's still yeah, I'm relatively at straws. It's still <laughs> relatively recently that Labour figured out whether people with Asian-sounding names were buying too many properties in Auckland. So, oh do you remember that? Just like, I very yes, yes, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. So you say you have hope, but you better marry a white boy, Serena, is all I'm saying here. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to keep my last name no matter who I marry. But, well, like, shit. <laughs> Don't buy a house in Auckland. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, white people, watch out. I'm going after your houses, just so you know. <laughs> Not in this economy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, are there no Asian people with labour? I, But now that I think about it, most Asian people that I know vote for national. Um, Fran, so. who we both know, Fran Hernandez, wrote his, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, master's thesis on Asian voters as a block. Um, so he would be a good person to talk to before we say anything more about this. <laughs> yeah. No, because we're wildly speculating here. Or at least I am. <laughs> oh, we're talking, we're talking a lot about our experiences, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And that, you know, the plural of anecdote isn't data, but it's also like, this is, this uh, provides piece a value. Of data. Yeah. <laughs> a datum, uh, if you will. Oh my God, Serena. <laughs> Can we go back to talk about science fiction? So yeah, let's, let's go back. think about like racism <laughs> in New Zealand anymore. Like, oh my God. Oh, shit. Speaking yeah. of New Zealand, have you, um, have you read any Bernard Beckett? No, I haven't. Um, I'm just going to check the name of his book. He wrote this, like, very nice um, young adult book called something. He writes a lot of young adult fiction. Um, I'm trying to find the name. 
Genesis? Was it Genesis? Oh, I'm trying to read. Yes. Genesis. Genesis rings a bell. Um, Genesis is particularly like um, a science fiction futuristic novel that basically is the rest of the world has turned to shit. And so New Zealand put up these big fences and shoots anyone who comes close to them. <laughs> and it's just like, oh no. Um, That's a bit too real. I do really appreciate this idea of New Zealand being like an aggressor. <laughs> Though, like, because it seems so wildly out of like character for us. Like, yeah. I think the closest we got to aggression was in like the longer years, where David Longy was like breaking up with the US, um, because like we didn't want nuclear power in our waters, and it's just like, oh wow, this is so it was wild so for better. us. Ooh, it oh, it was. Oh my gosh. Lean a bit closer. I can smell the uranium on your breath. Oh, shivers. <laughs> um, but I do, I do very much like science fiction that features New Zealand and sort of focuses around us and our future. I think it is, um, mm. we want for a bit of it. I mean, I mentioned Ken Katran in my in, um, introduction, but I think even a lot of his science fiction, from what I can remember, was like, it felt New Zealandish to read if you knew what you were looking for. Mm. Which I think is fair enough if you want to, like, sell to a broad audience. Um, and, like, similarly, there was uh, the most recent season of The Leftovers is set in Melbourne. Um but they've had three other seasons set in the US. So they've got an audience hooked and now they're like, Antipodes, what's up? I think like Bernard Becker has particularly intrigued me because like when he writes science fiction, it is unapologetically in New Zealand. And I think that's really, really awesome. That is really cool. Because New Zealand culture, there is something incredibly unique about it. And like, I can't really pinpoint what's unique about it, but the reason I know that it's unique is because uh, I have seen the US remake of Outrageous Fortune, or at least the first like 10 minutes of it, <laughs> and it does not work. There is something about that show, which in my opinion is the best New Zealand show produced ever. <laughs> There's just something about that that's so quintessentially New Zealand, and I'm not sure what it is, but shit, we need more of that. And to, and to see that in science fiction, to see us in an imagined future world, to see us succeeding in ways that might be hard to imagine in the world of today, that's worth something. Um, I'm afraid I have to update you that Ken Katran and my love for him, he's so <laughs> niche that mm-hmm. he does not have a Wikipedia page. Oh, I could probably write one from memory. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy. Oh. Yeah, I think in my room at home I have, like, all of his books. Um, <laughs> and, like, it's also the fact that, like, there are particular concerns that are more relevant in New Zealand. So, like, a lot of science fiction, like horrors in the last episode that we talked about, um, mm. Science fiction, to an extent, like plays off our fears, our hopes, our dreams. Hmm. Um, there's a few King Katran books where, like, basically, if you spend more than thirty minutes in the sun in a week, like, you'll get cancer. Like, and I think yeah. that's a very that's a very New Zealand fear. That is. Yes. Um, I think the sort of environmental issues. Um, Bernard Beckett, one of his books is called Jolt. And it's about mm-hmm. an earthquake, like fucking everything up, and like that's you see that in California, like to an extent, but like in New Zealand, like that is everyone's fear yeah. like you think about um under it's the mountain fear. like <laughs> those are all things that are so very new zealand um i'm sorry also that i i'm referencing a lot of male new zealand authors but they're the ones i sort of know for science fiction like there are mm. a lot of really excellent new zealand or, uh, female authors like obviously Catherine mansfield um janet frame particularly um the woman whose name starts with g anyway there is this um new zealand author who has written like a series of books that is also, like, very unapologetically in New Zealand and is also, um, like, it's very sort of science fiction fantasy. It's, like, it's about this world called, like, O and, like, Susan, who's just, like, this 14-year-old girl in New Zealand, it turns out has, like, magical powers in this world and, like, is their chosen one. And it's, like, it's very sort of, you know, like, your trite fantasy chosen one. And it is, like, Mm -hmm. catnip to a, you know, like, I think, yeah, I was an early teenager at the time, to mm-hmm. a young teenage woman in New Zealand who is also just like, hell yes, I'm a bit weird. I'm just like this woman. That's um, awesome. That was pretty great. 
I'll let you know if I remember his name, but do not hold out hope for me. That sounds so good, though. I kind of want to read that. No, I was just going to say, I could probably find it for you in my intermediate school's library. I cannot find it, like, at all on the internet. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) But continue. Those Those are treasured books. Those rare books. Uh, yeah, I forgot to mention that I'm currently in the middle of reading a sci-fi book. Um, I should probably read more tonight. It's called The Three-Body Problem. Yes! Yeah. Hi! And <laughs> it's freaking great. It is, yeah, it is really, really well written. And I am learning so much about the Chinese Revolution through translator's notes. Yeah, uh, Ken Liu is the translator, and he's also written um, a bunch of sci-fi short stories. Well, I wouldn't call them sci-fi. They're more like magic, magical realism. Yeah, he's written long-form fantasy, um, and yeah. I've read some of his uh, short stories because I have a short story collection of Chinese short story science fiction writers that he edited. Oh. And that's also very good. It's called... If I can is see it the it paper? It's got like a white um, spine to it, so I can't actually read the title. <laughs> uh, I can jump up and get it again. Oh, oh, too many books. Computer's too far away from my bookshelf. I don't know how to pronounce this, but the short story I read of his was called the Paper Menagerie. Menagerie. Uh, menagerie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I I read that, and I sat in bed and cried for three hours. And oh no! It was just, yeah, it was very well done. It was very, very well done. Um, so the anthology that he edited is called Invisible Planets and includes some very good um, young female science fiction writers as well awesome. as like Chishin Lu, who wrote Three Body Problem and is a very well known science fiction writer both within China and probably the most well known Chinese science fiction writer outside of China. Um, Invisible Planets, I think, is particularly good because it has essays at the back that talk about Chinese science fiction, like, in context. Mm. So, like, for example, the the title of, like, the first essay is The Worst of All Possible Universes and the Best of All Possible Earths, Three Body in Chinese Science Fiction. Cool. Yeah. I need to find that book. um, It's also, like, I think Ken Liu is very good because he recognises the temptations that... um, exist towards like western readers yeah um so like in his introduction to uh his to invisible planets can't believe i like managed to forget the title of this anthology within like two seconds he talks a little bit about like um i'm just gonna read out this because i just found it Given the realities of China's politics and its uneasy relationship with the West, it is natural for Western readers encountering Chinese science fiction to see it through the lens of Western dreams and hopes and fairy tales about Chinese politics. Subversion, in the pro-West sense, may become an interpretive crutch. It is tempting, for example, to view Ma Boyong's The City of Silence as a straightforward attack on China's censorship apparatus, or to read Chen Kifan's The Year of the Rat only as a criticism of China's education system and labour market, or even to reduce Jia Xia Jia's A Hundred Ghosts Parade Tonight to a veiled metaphor for China's eminent domain policies in the service of state-driven development. I would urge the reader to resist such temptation, imagining that the political concerns of Chinese writers are the same as what the Western reader would like them to be, is at best arrogant and at worst dangerous. Chinese writers are saying something about the globe, about all of humanity, not just China, and trying to understand their works through this perspective is, I think, the far more rewarding approach. And it's, like, those two paragraphs that yeah. meant I read that book so differently to what I would have otherwise. Because, like, I wouldn't have even picked up on me doing that myself. Mm. I would just read it and be like, oh, yeah, Chinese writers. They're writing about China. Like, they lived in China their entire lives. Cool. Yeah. But, like, realistically, like, we don't read American writers and we're like, oh, they're only talking about the U.S. or they're only talking about their specific state. Mm. I think, like, he's entirely right. Like, it's a best, like, it's a best arrogant. Um mm to do that and it was like incredibly good to sort of have him almost be like hey hey i know what you're gonna do don't now read this book (laughs) yeah he's great his translator's notes uh, oh god oh just so good and it gives you so much context into the references and the why and like and the feeling behind a single sentence 
Yes, another great sci-fi book that I would yeah. recommend, even though I'm only halfway through. I I've read the whole series and like I absolutely adore them. Like I think they're very very good. Mm. Um, yeah, I've. I think the three body problem was the one that I had the most problem putting down. <laughs> the other two, yeah. I did manage to pace myself a little bit, but like it is, it's excellent. Yeah, I think um, I did half the book in two nights, um, <laughs> and uh, I just need to pick it up again. I mean, the other thing that's sort of interesting about that reading it as you know, someone who's is for all intents and purposes Western, mm. like, is the amount of key players that are women. Yeah, I noticed that too, which is really cool because um, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't call China more sexist, but their sexism certainly does manifest in a very different way, um, which is quite quite apparent when you're over there and talking to the people and conversing with them. I mean, it's sort of like thinking about the way that gender norms exist in different countries. Yeah, I um, guess I guess what surprised me and what like kind of delighted me about the three body problem was that there existed female characters, pivotal female characters, main characters. And in Western media, you don't really see the existence of female characters. However, I think the sexism, like the very traditional Chinese kind of sexism, was still very apparent in that story. I mean, as well as that, it starts in the 60s, though. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't think it, it's a bad thing that it was in there, but I think it, is, uh, it highlights the different ways sexism manifests in the West and the East. Because in China, it's very much about, like, the women exist, they're important, and they have a role to play. Mm. And it's all about the duty that's bestowed upon you, depending on your gender. And that's interesting, because in the West, sexism manifests a little differently, in that women can do anything. Like, you're told from birth, like, girls can do anything. You can be anything you want. You can do whatever. You can achieve anything. But our stories don't exist. I mean, they do, but mm. not to the degree that men's do. I men's? mean, like, that's... <laughs> yeah. Oh, men's. Men's. Um, the men's. And that's where, yeah. like, you can look at something like Orphan Black, which I don't know if you've seen that, actually. I've seen a couple of episodes, but it didn't really grab me. So, I love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about genetics. It's about yes. clones. And they're lesbians. Um, so, what else do I need, really? <laughs> um, but essentially, the premise of Orphan Black is there is a woman who realizes that she is actually, like, one of a number of women who look exactly like her and mm-hmm. are actually clones. Like, they were created by something that... Um, like, a scientific project that was then shut down, and now there are people, like, trying to find her before she dies, because there was, like, a Terminator sequence in it, which will give her cancer. Um, the other thing is that she has a child, and she is the only one of any of the clones she meets that's fertile. Um, yeah. And so it's like, oh my god! And she was also a twin, like, so all of the clones were, like, implanted in different women, and her, like embryo divided and it's just like oh my god this is so exciting it's wild <laughs> but the really interesting thing is Tatiana Madsley um plays every single one of the clones she is a mm. fantastic actor like you can yeah. see the difference between her playing Allison who's a soccer mom clone um and playing like one of the other clones pretending to be Allison oh like, that's good and then like it takes that sort of little extra step where the bulk of the main characters are the same person and it has Mm. better diversity than almost any other show I've seen. So like Mm. a lot of the main characters that aren't Tatiana Madsley are, there are notable people of color. One of the clones who like comes in for a moment and then leaves again is trans. And that's Mm. sort of like discussed very like well Mm. and that like they meet him and they're like, you appear to be a clone. Can we help? You're one of us. Like, can can we talk to you? And he was like, nah, nah, not a clone. There's only one me. And, like, Ollie's the fuck out of there. Um, and the um, policeman who's, like, working with them and the adoptive brother that's sort of there, the policeman's like, oh, what is... And, like, kind of looks really uncomfortable for a bit and then is like, shh. And the adoptive brother is like, no, he. 
he's a guy. Like, mm-hmm. we know this. He's quite, like, he's referred to himself with male pronouns, and apparently he wants nothing to do with us right now, and we have to respect that. And it's like, yes! Yep. Yeah. Like, two seconds of TV, like, two minutes of TV that just, like, yeah. had a trans character. The show as a whole, like, one of the main clones, Cosima, is a lesbian, and that is dealt with, like, so beautifully because at one point someone's like, oh, you appear to be a lesbian. How interesting. And it's like, it's one of the people who've been working on the clones. And mm. she's like, I think that maybe my sexuality is the least interesting thing about me. And it's like, oh, there's yep. so many things at play here. Because, like, you know that they know that you're a clone, but they don't know that you know that you're a clone. And, oh, my God, yes. Hello, what's up? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love this TV series so much and I'm really sad that like the final season is happening and it's like oh, no. oh it's gonna end um, but like that's so incredible to me because not only does it show women's stories it shows a lot of different women's stories it's essentially like you know talking about nature versus nurture saying like you mm. might be born as like one of you know 20 of the same person but you can have these very different lives so like Mm. one of them is a soccer mom with two adopted kids one of them is like kind of like a drop kick and like a grifter and one of them is a really cool scientist and one of them is um was taken in by the church and like indoctrinated into a cult and is like a little bit crazy, but also very, very nice when like she wants to be. And one of them <laughs> is a, um, a policewoman, And it's like, it's taking a lot of different ideas about like how a lot of people seem to think that like who we are is defined at birth and breaking those down at the same time, showing so many different ways that women can be strong and women can live really rewarding and like meaningful lives that's so cool. That's fantastic. Maybe I'll give it another go. Do it. I love it yeah. so much. Yeah, Just watch good. like five episodes in a night. That works for me. Yeah. And then I'll be hooked <laughs> and then I'll watch the rest yeah. of the same night. Yeah. Yeah. That's really yeah. what I'm going for here. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the only way to watch TV now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have time to space it out. I need to stay up all night. I need to fit it in one day. You haven't slept this week. Please sleep. I, I slept last night. Okay, good. But yeah, I think like sort of stories that show the way women's strength or like strength in general can be different. I think it's very interesting. So there was um, Mm. an episode of Steven Universe that also looked at this where like Steven Universe is a cartoon series Mm -hmm. on Cartoon Network about a boy named Steven Mm -hmm. and some aliens that he lives with. He has three alien moms. He's also kind of his own mom. It's a little bit confusing. You should just watch it and understand it that way. But, like, one of the moms is, like, a very sweet, like, they're all quite, like, athletic because they all, like, fight. But she's, like, she cares a lot and she's very specific in what she does and, like, it's very organized and it's sort of, like, that kind of mom. And the other one is very strong and they're sort of having a discussion and then, like, a song comes on because it's one of those things... And the song is about, like, showing you, showing someone how to be strong in a different way. Mm. And sort of ever since I saw that episode, I've been really interested in stories about that actually investigate different types of strength. And I think, like, that's circling back a little bit. Like, that's where I think a lot of Joss Whedon's feminism falls down because, like, the way he appears to portray strong women is always, like, they can kick your ass. Guns. Punches to the face. I love that. I go to the gym because I want to be Commander Shepard one day, right? Like, Yeah. But also, there is, like, a very key emotional strength that, particularly women, but, like, I think men would really benefit from having as well. I think there is... Absolutely. A strength in being someone's rock. A strength in being, like, something that other people can organize themselves around. Mm. Um, And, like, I think that's often the role that our moms tend to fill. And to see shows that recognize that strength and treat it as strength, like, that just makes me so happy. Yeah. That's something that men need in their lives, desperately, I think, in in the media that they consume, is to see strength depicted, like, emotional strength as something that's valued in men as well. Yeah. Really, more diversity all around is... Yeah, most definitely. I think um that's actually something Steven Universe does really well as well, is, like, Steven is a very empathetic boy. Like, he doesn't attack people. His, mm. like, main, you know, quote-unquote weapon is, like, a shield. Mm. Like, 
and to have this main character have like be you know male but also to be sweet and caring and protective of his friends and to really honestly discuss his emotions I think is really really valuable particularly seeing as the Cartoon Network show so like kids Mm. are going to be watching this and seeing that as a value yeah rather than like oh you're a pussy bro (laughs) muscle I'm gonna lift a couch now Bro, muscle, bro. <laughs> there is hope for the future. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, most definitely. And, like, Rebecca Sugar, who's the creator of Steven Universe and has written a lot of Adventure Time episodes, which I would also count as science fiction. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, like, she really has that, like, consciously. I believe she's queer. And so she just, like, write stuff that she would have wanted to see as a child. And it's like, yes. That's fantastic. What's up? <laughs> um, yeah. I have a question for you. Okay. And this question is just one of the things that you've written down in the Google Doc. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a good question because we both are, well, you're a scientist and you know, I have a <laughs> science background. Does it matter to you if the science is good? How good? Why good? Like, I think it matters to an extent. So, like, the movie that comes to mind, well, the two movies that come to mind when you say, like, doesn't matter if the science is good, is one, mm-hmm. Gattaca. Mm-hmm. We'll get on to that. And two, <laughs> Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Rise <coughs> of the Planet of the Apes frustrates me. And, like, this is, like, the thing, right? Like, I get very frustrated when scientists are painted as the villain. Yeah. Um, and I think that is very much what happens in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And, like, it's tried to be sort of painted as, like, James Franco is totally, like, understandable here. He just made a lot of bad choices. And it's, like, there is a discussion that happens between him and his boss in the movie when Mm -hmm. his boss says, you only have one subject, you cannot take this to human trials. And James Franco says, we only need one subject. And it's just, like, I want to burn down everyone who worked on this film now. Because, like... Realistically, like, no scientist, even if you're working on something that is so close to you. Because, like, he was in a situation where he was trying to create a viral cure for Alzheimer's and his father had Alzheimer's yeah. and he his father was getting worse and he was like, this cure needs to work. Like, I have to cure my dad. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. Um, and then it turns out that the virus, like, kills people and makes monkeys really smart. <laughs> <laughs> Who could have seen this one coming? Yeah. Um, and, like, there's some very bad, like, handling of live viruses that occurs in the film, so that frustrates me, like... Yeah. Realistically, all that shit would be done in a PC3 or 4 lab where that, like, kind of shenanigan couldn't happen. Mm. But, like, I recognise they have to make a story out of it. Like, I'm not trying to be, like, this sort of buzzkill, like, oh, all science fiction stories are bullshit because scientists never make mistakes. <laughs> like, we fucking do. Like, we're as human as the next person. Yeah. Um, but no one would ever say one subject is enough. And, like, that just, like, got me so badly. I was just like, how dare you make this blockbuster film (laughs) and put it out and, like, while people aren't going to watch it and be like, James Franco is representative of all scientists, like, I think it is another piece of the puzzle that people put together and they're like, well, we can't trust scientists. Maybe climate change isn't happening. Will vaccines, like, kill my baby? Who fucking knows? Scientists are all liars. Like, I think that plays into those kind of stereotypes, like, that mistrust of science. And that, like, makes me so angry. The reason Gattaca makes me angry is different. It's because apparently (laughs) they live in a future where they can, like, test tube baby, every single baby, but can't fucking scan someone's heart to find out if it's going to explode. I mean, where are the things that happened? (laughs) Do Do they not have one MRI machine? Do they not... Do fitness <laughs> tests on their astronauts? Well, who who was it that um? There's two quotes here, and I'm probably going to misquote both of them. The first being, any technology that is advanced enough is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. I don't know why I said that. Hang on. Um, it's re- it's related, dear listener. Serena <laughs> just gave a really good quote that is related to the theme of this episode. If not, what I just said. <laughs> Um. so basically the like conceit of Gattaca is like basically everyone is like fully genetically determined now but the main character who isn't Jude Law but looks kind of like Jude Law like wasn't and so he's seen as like a lesser class of citizen and can never be an astronaut and he really wants to be an astronaut and go to like 
Europa or some shit. Like, he wants to go to Jupiter. And so he goes and he finds this guy who, like, has a really sick genome. Like, sick isn't good, not sick isn't sick. But he broke his back, and this is Jude Law. And so he steals Jude Law's identity with Jude Law's, like, consent. Um, and then meets Uma Thurman, and they have, like, a weird romance thing go on where Uma Thurman is like, I have a heart murmur. And he's like, I have a heart murmur maybe also as well. And she's like, <laughs> I can never go to space. He's like, I'm lying so I can go to space. And it's bullshit. Um, <laughs> like, really what you need to get from me right here, right now, is that there are some gaping potholes in Gattaca. Um, <laughs> well, so... And it just, like, it just frustrated me so much that they never mm-hmm. did any actual physicals on them. Like, you think about how people become astronauts now. They have to do, like, turntable tests. They have to, like, yeah. do all this other shit to make sure that they don't, like, explode when they go into space. Like, they have to be put under the same forces that they will when they take off in a rocket ship. To ensure that their hearts don't explode when they take off on a rocket ship. Apparently, mm-hmm. just can't do this to, like, Jude Law lookalike. I think it was Ethan Hawke. Like, can't, yeah. can't do it. Can't be like, sure, your gene, like, gives you a sort of, yeah, whatever, 90% chance of having a heart that'll explode and you'll die at some point. But we're not going to test that. Like, we're not going to check if that actually eventuates. It's just like, you can, you can, you can look at his heart. You know that, right? Like, if you can create tissue babies and, like, make IVF all of the time, always, ever, yeah. you can look at its heart. You must have the technology. MRIs <laughs> exist. So I, I remember the quote. Uh, it's someone talking about how the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. Yes. Oh, that's Which good. applies very much to the future that we're in now, because shit. We talk about this a lot in the class I, classes I teach, actually. It's like it's a concept of distributive justice, and the question yeah. is, like, if a technology is available, is it equally available to everyone, mm. slash, like, the greater good? And so, yeah. like, I was getting my students to do a practice assessment relatively recently, and there's a question where, like, a baby has been conceived with the idea that he will be a saviour sibling for his brother, which is, like, it's a fucked up concept, but, like, Jodie Picoult still writes books and sells them off the basis of it, so whatever, I guess. Um... And the question is, like, what is the balance of harms if stem cells are harvested from this baby to stop his brother from having a particular type of leukemia? And the key piece of information for that is that his brother's leukemia currently requires blood transfusions every fortnight. Hmm. And so, like, you're kind of – you're meant to, but, like, there is no right answers in this course. But, like, essentially, like, the idea is that you find out the balance of harms is that, like, this baby should have a stem cell called blood taken in order to – fix his older brother, partly because if his brother is cured, then he no longer requires, like, weekly, like fortnightly blood transfusions, and that blood can save other people's lives. And that's the concept of dis- distributive justice. Yeah. Like, you basically make it so that we can save the most lives, essentially similar to um, the uh, altruism we were talking about recently. Like, you can save more yeah. lives using, like, the same amount of resources. Mm. Um, and the reason why I was... Um talking about how this quote relates to revolution was that someone said if it's inaccessible to the poor then it's neither radical nor revolutionary yes and yeah that's that's definitely something that i wish places like silicon valley would understand because that's a hub where i think like the future is there but it's not distributed very well at all and so i mean circling back to gattaca that might be why they can't mri hearts because he just got shitty distribution although to he's your gonna point be, he's gonna fly to jupiter i'm pretty <laughs> sure they can like spill some dollars to check on his heart because even if he didn't have a genetic um pr- like predisposition towards that if yeah. it smoked for a bit as a teenager you might still have a dicky heart right like yeah. jesus anyway get a good trash <laughs> yeah but to your point like i don't know i i understand that not everything has to be scientifically accurate in the movies. It just needs to convey the idea that it's trying to convey, convey the world correctly to the audience um, and really be able to convey the story. So like in Gravity by Alfonso Cuaron, there's a scene where, where they're like flying away from something and then they catch on and like the forces just don't make sense, but they needed the forces do not make sense for the story. So it's like, okay, I understand that. But in other cases where the science isn't right, when it's very clear that they haven't gone to the effort of asking an actual scientist like how things work, 
it ruins your suspension of disbelief and it kind of ruins the world that they're building. Yeah. So to me, it's like, hey, I will suspend belief as much as I need to for the story. But if it, if it takes me out of your story, if it makes me think this is not a real scientist, I'm just watching actors, then, you know, you're doing a disservice to your story. But I, I don't think, I mean, in the world of 2006, uh, 17, 17. 17. <laughs> it's May, it's May. And I still think it's 2016. Um, but in the world of today, I don't, I think we're seeing filmmakers and storytellers really respect the method of, uh, not only scientists, but like I watched, uh, Arrival. Have you seen Arrival by the way? Uh, no, I haven't, but I've read the short story it was based off. Yeah. It's both, uh, fantastic. Both are great. Both are highly recommended. But they spoke to actual linguists, and and there's, I feel like there's a, more of a respect for craft in those movies nowadays that I didn't really see when I was growing up. So that's nice. Yeah. That's I think good. that's a pretty good note to end on. Yes. Hey, thanks for listening to this incredibly nerdy episode of Things of Interest. <laughs> we took a brief foray into discussing racism in New Zealand for like 20 minutes or something. Um, as usual, you can find us on Twitter at Casting Interest. We're on Facebook at Things of Interest. And you can email us at castinginterest at gmail.com. Um, we love hearing from you, so please, if you have thoughts, opinions, outrage, we didn't mention your favourite science fiction thing. I don't care about Star Wars. So <laughs> I don't care I, about Star Wars either. Woohoo! Um, so don't email us if you're mad about Star Wars, but anything else, go for it. Uh, feel free to get in touch with us there. Yeah. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed this episode, if you liked our recommendations, please do leave us some stars on the iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, again, maybe share this with a friend. Uh, bring some nerdy joy into their lives as we have brought nerdy joy into each other's lives and go forth and stay interesting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Go forth and stay interesting. Peace out. <laughs>